Honorable guests, ladies and gentlemen, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I want to begin by sharing a joke with you. This is a joke about a husband and wife, and they're on their way to take a journey. And you can imagine, maybe they're going from Calgary to Kelowna, you know what I did today. And the husband, he asks his wife, honey, how long are you going to be? And the wife says, I will be ready in five minutes. The men in the room, we've heard this all the time from our wives, from our partners. 45 minutes go by, and the wife still isn't ready. Eventually she comes down, and the husband's really angry. So she's trying to put on a cheerful face, and she's like, honey, let's get going. And the husband's like, shut up and let me drive. They get into the car, and they start driving along. And the wife, she feels really bad. She's remorseful of everything that's taking place. So she wants to spark up a nice conversation. And as they're driving by this beautiful tree, she says, honey, isn't this tree so beautiful? And the husband gives her the stare of death. Just let me drive, leave me alone, I don't want to talk to you. Now the husband, he starts to feel bad. He's like, why do I always treat my wife like this? I should be more kind, I should be more courteous. So what if we're late from time to time? So now, with his mixed emotions of being angry as to why she's always late and wanting to make up for what he's done, he tries to spark up a conversation. Now when a guy tries to spark up a conversation, you know it's going to go terribly wrong. And this is what happened. So they're driving by a farm, and I want you to imagine you hear the braying of a donkey, the mooing of a cow, the barking of a dog. And he goes, honey, let me guess, these are relatives of yours. She goes, you're right, they're my in-laws. Now I begin with this joke, my dear brothers and sisters, and guests here tonight, because this is sort of what the discourse between the Muslim community and the non-Muslim community has been. Where both parties, they come in with these pure intentions, wanting to contribute to the discussion on Islam, but somewhere in between, something went wrong. And they end up becoming like that couple that is constantly arguing and bickering, but not knowing why. So tonight's discussion is about misconceptions about Islam. Now when we talk about misconceptions, before we open up the floor for the misconceptions that you would like to discuss, I would like to develop a foundation. And this foundation is going to consist of three things. Number one, the importance of having a holistic approach. So I want you to imagine, I'm telling you a story. The first part of the story is, a man died. That's pretty sad, isn't it? Second part of the story, this man died after he shot five people. Now you feel a bit more upset. Why would this man kill five people? You know, what's his deal? You learn more about this story. This man killed five people after they tried to annihilate his whole town and rape all of the women and kidnap all of the children. It's getting a bit more dramatic now. You know, have a bit more knowledge, you have a, a more complete picture. You add to the story now, the first man that I spoke about that died, he was actually a police officer. How does our perception change as we increase in knowledge? The more we know, the more complete picture we have, the more assessment we can make as to what is right and what is wrong. And that is why I believe that when we approach any subject matter, we have to have the complete picture. It has to be a holistic approach. We can't just take bits and bobs and assume that you know what? 
just because I have a pixel from the TV screen, that's what the whole picture actually is. No, if you want a complete picture, step back, look at all of the pixels inside of the TV screen, and that's when you actually have a complete picture. Number two, it's very important to distinguish between what a faith is and what its followers try to represent. What does this actually mean? The religion under discussion today is Islam. Someone that affiliates themselves with this religion is known as a Muslim. Somewhere along the lines, disconnects happen. People do things for wrong reasons under a particular name. So to give you an example, if I was to come to Kelowna, and actually this is my, my first time in Kelowna staying over, the first restaurant I, I, I went to, we went to go have sushi. And I was really looking forward to it. And in the sushi experience, as I'm trying to place an order, the lady that was taking our order, I was having a difficult time understanding what she was saying, and she was having a very difficult time understanding what I was saying. So now after this first experience in Kelowna, would it be fair for me to say everyone in Kelowna doesn't speak English well? No, it wouldn't. It would be a, a great overgross generalization that is not factual at all, right? And Kelowna, it has many community members a part of it. It is very diverse in terms of its ethnic population. And it's going to be very diverse even in terms of the religions that are represented in it. Now, in order to have a good understanding of the people of Kelowna, to speak to one or two people, you're not going to get a good understanding of what Kelowna is about. But rather speak to as many people as you can, particularly those people that would represent Kelowna, right? The mayor of the city and other people of authority in the community. Those are the people that you want to get to know. So when we talk about Islam, it's very important to understand that every single Muslim, they affiliate themselves with Islam, but they don't truly represent the religion. They don't truly represent the religion. Why? Because every community will have its fringe members that do things in the name of their community, but in actuality their community is free from it. And I'm not going to give examples, but I'm sure we know of various communities where their particular members do things that their community is not particularly proud of, but as they are community members, we can't completely disassociate and excommunicate them, right? So that's the second thing I would mention, differentiate between what Islam truly is and its followers and who they try to represent. As a Muslim global community, there are about 1.6 billion Muslims across the world. 1.6 billion. That's over a sixth of the world's population. So look around you, what that technically means for every six people in the room around us, one of them is Muslim. Generally speaking, if you were to look at the world in this fashion, that's what it would mean. So we're a very large population of people. Now, having said that, I want to talk briefly about the media. There's a reason why the name Muslim and Islam has become at the forefront of the media. And I want to do justice to this topic over here to the best of my ability. I was speaking to a journalist not too long ago, and I asked him, why is it that you only report the bad stuff that happens? You watch the news, what do you hear? You hear about someone getting killed, you hear about a bank robbery, 
you hear about bombs being dropped. These are the sort of stories you hear in the news. Why is it that we don't hear stories of, you know, someone saving a cat on a tree? Why is it that we don't hear about the amazing jobs that firemen and doctors and police officers do on a daily basis? We hear very, very few of those stories. And what he told me was very profound. He said, how many planes do you think take off a day? I said, thousands of planes take off a day. He said, as a journalist, what people want to hear about are the ones that crash, not the ones that successfully take off. So media is actually a business. They are there to sell stories, not only to consumers, but also to advertisers that want the attention of the consumers. That's what actually happens in media. So now when it comes to the media, this is just part of their job. They're going to report stories that sell. Because they, at the end of the day, have to earn a living, and they have to get by as well. So that's one of the things that's been across the forefront. And I'll particularly speak about the Canadian context. You know, we recently had elections. And in these elections, something that we kept seeing over and over again was the issue of the niqab, the issue of a woman's face veil. And how a woman showed up at her oath of citizenship, and she was wearing this face veil. Now why did that deserve front page coverage? When most of us should know that in the history of Canada, only two women, not 20, not 200, not 2,000, not 2 million, two women in the history of Canada have showed up wearing a face veil to this oath of citizenship. Do we not have more important subjects to talk about? Like our economic crisis, like things that are happening in our environment, like things that are happening to old age pensions. We have a lot more important things to discuss. Yet, it was a political strategy that was picked up by the media and brought to the forefront. Can I blame the media for doing that? No. Can I say it was unfair? Definitely. And that's what I believe we're here to talk about tonight. That not everything that we see on the media is actually fair representation. And I'm hoping that tonight we can open up our hearts and open up our minds and truly discuss what we have internally. I was telling one of the reporters earlier that you know a, a reoccurring theme in, in uh, romantic comedies is that there's a scene where a girl and a guy they'll get stuck in an elevator and prior to that there could be adversaries but by that end of their, you know, I don't know what the polite word for it is, but of their hookup inside the elevator, you know, they end up falling in love, right? Even though they're completely different. And that's what I was saying, that our interaction as human beings is very socially dependent, right? When I'm behind a screen, you're going to get a completely different experience as opposed to if you're in front of me in person. And you get to know that standing in front of you right now, while you may not see it, I'm a nervous wreck inside. I'm shaking as much as I could possibly could. And my heart is beating really, really fast. But this is a part of the human experience. And that human experience is very, very important in understanding how the world works. Because we are humans at the end of the day, coming from different backgrounds, coming from different experiences. But we are all here together to make the communities, the cities, the countries the globe as a whole, a better place to live in. With that introduction, 
I'd like to start off my first topic of discussion, which is the word Sharia. What does it actually mean and where does it come from? By a show of hands, how many people speak Arabic? If you speak Arabic, raise your hands. Fantastic. Thank you very much. You can put your hands down. So the word Sharia is a very similar word to the word Sharia. And the word Sharia in the Arabic language means street. It means a road. What is the relationship between a road and this concept known as Sharia law? What is the relationship between the two? From a linguistic perspective, Sharia was the road people would take to reach a source of water. To reach a source of water. So back in the day, they didn't have pipes that brought water to your house. You would actually have to go outside of your house, walk down a street, or many streets in fact, a long distance, to go and get some water to drink, to bathe with, to cook with, and so on and so forth. And that street that you took to the source of water is what was called Sharia. That is what Sharia means from a linguistic perspective. Now what's the interesting thing about water? For those of you that are Bruce Lee fans, you remember this famous quote by Bruce Lee, be like water. Why did he say that? Because the impressive thing about water is that it can take any form that you put it into. So for example, you put water into a cup, it takes the shape of a cup. You put it into a jar, it takes the shape of a jar. It takes every single shape that you put it into. It is with that understanding that when you look at Islamic law, it is like water. Dependent on the time, dependent on the place, it is very dynamic. And it will accommodate to that place and to that time. When we talk about Islamic law and we talk about Sharia, it is important to understand, like any other system of law, it has integral components that it's trying to preserve. Meaning that, what is the philosophy of the law behind it? What is it trying to achieve? So when we talk about Sharia law and Islamic law, it has come to preserve five matters. It has come to preserve five integral things. Now understanding these five integral things is very important. Why? Because if you can understand these five integral things, you as an individual right now who may have not known anything about Islam, will be given the tool to distinguish what is truly Islamic versus that which is not. Versus that which is not. So the first thing that Sharia came to protect and to preserve is human life. The most important thing in Islamic law that needs to be preserved is human life. From a logical perspective, let us look at why. Because if you don't have human beings, there are no individuals to implement this law, right? And without those human beings, there is no law to practice. That is why they are the first integral component. So when you look at Sharia law, the first thing that it came to protect is human life. The second thing it has come to protect is faith, is religion. Why is religion important? When we talk about religion, and I understand people have a wide variety of orientations when it comes to their faiths, and beliefs when it comes to their faiths. So take what I am saying in consideration to your particular belief. From a Muslim's perspective, when we talk about faith, it's not just about something that we do in a mosque. It's not just something that we do when Muslims get together. 
But when I talk about faith, faith for me is a way of life. The way I interact with my parents, the way that I interact with my spouse, the way that I interact with my children, the way that I interact with the mayor of the city, the way that I interact with all of you. All of this is dictated by a form of guidelines through my faith and religion. So my faith teaches me to be kind to people, to be courteous to people, to smile at people, to be generous to people, to be hospitable at people. Speaking of which, we have some treats for you at the end of the session. So please feel free to help yourselves at the end of the session. Right? So faith is not only just about what we believe, but it is about our rules of engagement with people. What are the guidelines that we need to interact with people as a Muslim, we derive that from our faith. Why is that important to us? Because our success in this life and the next is based upon our moral and religious values. So the second thing that the Sharia came to protect is faith. The third thing that the Sharia came to protect is human intellect. Human intellect. Why is that important? Because it is through our intellect that we are able to make good decisions as opposed to bad ones. And this sort of gives you a small introduction as to why is it that Muslims don't drink alcohol. And we have such a strong stance against alcohol. Why is it that Muslims don't do drugs and they have such a strong, strong stance towards drugs? Because one of the things that the Sharia came to protect was the intellect. Because if your intellect is compromised, you're no longer able to protect your religion, nor are you able to protect mankind and humanity. Number four, the fourth thing that the Sharia came to protect is, human, is uh, wealth, is wealth. So as a Muslim, we have guidelines as to how we, are, we spend our wealth, as to what we spend our wealth on. And in fact, there's a mandatory charity upon every single Muslim of 2.5% that he has to or she has to give to poor people. These are some of the rules of wealth preservation. Why is wealth important? Because whether we want to admit it or not, money is king. Without money in this world, you're not going to get very far. In fact, if you didn't have money, you couldn't have come to this school. If there was no money, the school couldn't have been built. If there was no money, we couldn't have taken planes to come to this beautiful country that we call home, known as Canada. All of it is dependent on money. And the fifth and last thing that the Sharia came to, represent, uh, to protect and um, preserve is honor. Is honor. So now with all of these things, the way that we interact with one another has to be in an honored and dignified manner. We cannot disrespect people. We cannot look down at people. We cannot be arrogant and condescending towards people. We treat anyone and everyone with honor and respect. So now, who can repeat these five back to me? Let's take one at a time. Just give me one of them. It came to protect human life. Fantastic. What's number two? Go ahead. Sorry? Intellect. It came to protect intellect. Fantastic. What's number three? Faith is number three. Fantastic. We're missing four and five now. Wealth. And what was the last one I just mentioned? Honor. Those are the five things that the Sharia came to protect and preserve. 
Now, it is with this lens, when you hear something about a Muslim in the news, you can automatically judge, is what this person doing actually Islamic, or actually against Islamic teachings. So now when you see this ISIS member on TV, and he's going around just, you know, mercilessly killing people, and you have learned that the first thing that the Sharia has come to preserve is human life, you now understand that yes, this person may affiliate themselves with Islam, but what they're actually doing is not very Islamic. So that was why this introduction to Sharia was so important. Because you now have the tools as to what is Islamic versus what is one person's misrepresentation or misunderstanding or construing of Islamic law. The next subject matter I would like to discuss is the topic of jihad. You know, people when I mention jihad, they get on edge. They're like, oh my god, what's gonna happen right now? And I was actually thinking about pulling a prank on you guys. If I had like the, I guess if I wasn't as nervous, I would have said, okay guys, shut the doors. <laughs> but I didn't do that. I did not do that. So what does jihad actually mean? And I'm really glad that I can use the word jihad and actually laugh about it, right? You know, that's one of the beauties of living in this country, that we have that freedom of speech. And you know, this is something that I value very personally, that I'm given an opportunity to speak to my fellow Canadians and community members and share my understanding of a very sensitive topic. And the way I would approach the term jihad, again, starting off linguistically, the term jihad comes from mujahada, which means to struggle, to counter, to go against. So when there is any form of struggle, this is known as jihad. Now when we talk about jihad from an Islamic perspective, what are we referring to? Let us go back to the very first revelation in the Qur'an, which is the holy book for Muslims, where the term jihad was revealed for the very first time. If you were to look inside the 25th chapter of the Qur'an, and this is just for your own reference, that was the very first time that the term jihad was revealed in the Qur'an, in terms of its chronological order. And the command that God gave in this verse was, وَجَاهِدْهُمْ بِهِ جِهَادًا كَبِيرًا And go and perform with this a great jihad. So now let's put all the pieces of the puzzles together. We mentioned jihad is linguistically struggle. So go and perform a great struggle with this. What is the intended meaning of this? The intended meaning of this in this verse is actually the book of God Himself, the, 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 the Qur'an. That's what it's referring to. So go and perform a great jihad with this book. Meaning that the very first jihad that was revealed in the Qur'an was to wage a struggle against ignorance. That it was an educational, scholastic, academic struggle. That when ignorance is prevalent in the world, the first step to eradicating it is enlightening people with knowledge. Getting people to know that yes, there is ignorance and we need to do something to change it. That was the very first revelation of jihad in the Qur'an. What are the different types of jihad that actually exist? Common knowledge would assume that when we talk about jihad, it's simply about killing people. 
Because that's what we see on Fox News. You'll see someone again from an extremist group like ISIS or like Al-Qaeda. They're blowing up buildings and they're like, yes, we're waging Islamic Jihad. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Because when you actually look at the concept of Jihad in Islam, there's approximately 14 different categories of it. Of which only three of them have any form of physical violence related to it. And I use the term physical violence very loosely. Because you'll notice that not all types of violence is the same. As we saw in the story of the police officer that I started off with. So now what are the other types of jihad? From a Muslim's perspective, the greatest form of jihad is definitely an educational jihad. Waging war on ignorance is of the utmost importance. A second form of jihad is the struggle that we face as human beings in serving our parents. A man came to the Prophet Muhammad once and he said, O Prophet of God, grant me permission to go out on an expedition with you. The Prophet asked this young man, Are your parents still alive? The man said, Yes, O Prophet. The Prophet responded by saying, فَفِيهِمَا fajahid." that go and perform jihad in serving your parents. And this put things into perspective for this man, that he thought, you know what, I wanted to achieve this great station in Islam by going out on an expedition with the Prophet of God. Yet the Prophet of God is telling me, you know what, know your role. Your role right now is to take care of your parents. And that is the most important thing that you could be doing. And that is another great station in Islam where a person dedicates themselves to taking care of their parents. Now, certain concepts could be relatable, and other concepts will be completely foreign. So this concept of struggling for the sake of taking care of our parents, there was a time in our history as human beings, where our parents were very, very revered, and they had a very high station in our lives. And as we grew as we technologically advanced, as we let pop culture dictate our social and moral values, that level of reverence has gone down over time. To such a state that, you know, if we see someone shouting back at their parents or speaking back to their parents, it's no longer taboo. But in Muslim culture, speaking back to your parents or doing something to intentionally anger your parents is actually considered a major sin. It's actually considered a major sin in Islam to do something to harm your parents. So that cultural disconnect may be there, and that's why I want to give you that, 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 that small tangent. Another form of jihad that takes place is jihad with one's wealth. And what this means is, when we talk about wealth in Islam, we consider wealth as a trust from God. Right? Our life is a trust from God. Our ability to see, smell, and taste, and to love are trusts from God. Similarly, our wealth is a trust from God. When something is a trust, what does that mean? It means that there will come a day, which we call the day of judgment, which we will stand in front of God, and God will question us. The wealth that I gave you, what did you do with it? Did you spend it in waste? Or did you actually do something productive with it in trying to help mankind? Then from an Islamic perspective, there's a minimal threshold of righteousness, and then there's greater levels of righteousness. 
And as I mentioned previously, that minimal threshold of righteousness in terms of one's wealth, 2.5% of my wealth every single year has to go towards poor people. It has to. No matter how much I may not want to do it, my faith is dependent upon it. I will be doing an act of sin if I'm not giving it in charity. Now the beautiful thing about this 2.5% is that from our perspective, it's actually not that much money. Imagine you have a dollar and someone asks you for 2.5 cents. In our day and age, we don't even have 2.5 cents anymore. Like the closest denomination is 5 cents now, right? So that shows us that we don't even have a denomination small enough to represent it. That's how much for each dollar we would give away. So it's not heavy upon the individual, but if every single one of us in this room is giving away 2.5 cents out of their dollar towards a person in need, that could drastically change that person's life. Because I give 2.5 cents, you give 2.5 cents, she gives 2.5 cents, everyone's giving 2.5 cents, we'll have approximately, if there's 100 people in the room, we're looking at, let's do the math, $2.50. Okay, that's like a Tim Hortons coffee. It's not too much. <laughs> in my head, it worked out better. But let's just say we have 1,000 people. You have $25. And that's only off $1. That's under the presumption. That's where I went wrong. That's under the presumption we only have $1. Right? If you have $1, we're each giving 2.5 cents. Realistically, I think we, you know, as students, I know we're all broke. But I, we have more than a dollar, right? So... You have $100, let's just say, right? It goes up to like $25. That's $25 per month. You can drastically change someone's life. So that is jihad with one's wealth. What are you spending your wealth on? Is it towards improving the world? Or is it just about fulfilling your you know, carnal desires? Like you know, someone that may spend their, their wealth on like drugs and alcohol and you know, other vices that, that could be seen. So that is jihad with one's wealth. Now, let me conclude the issue of jihad. What is important for us to understand about jihad after this small introduction? I mentioned in my introduction on jihad, is that yes, there are certain forms of jihad that do bring about human struggle in a physical sense. We want to call it violent. I would say violent would be fair, but violence comes with a stigma. And that stigma is that not all violence is justified, right? So I, I'm not familiar with a, a, a proper vocabulary in the English language that could bring about a complete picture, but I can portray that picture for you. That if there's an individual right now that is abusing a child, and you step in to protect that child, and that individual now starts abusing you, and you are forced to defend yourself, and you're forced to push this person away, or to push them to the ground, that is considered an act of violence. But it's also considered an act of self-defense, and it's also considered an act of heroism, that you're protecting someone that can't protect themselves. So that's the type of picture I portray, that, all not, that not all types of violence are the same. So it is with this light, I would like to say, that the Prophet Muhammad, he has said that the greatest form of jihad is to speak the truth to the face of a tyrannical ruler. To speak the truth to the face of a tyrannical ruler. These are the exact words of the Prophet Muhammad. That is the greatest form of jihad. So when we talk about 
physical manifestations of jihad where violence may be involved, it's not for the sake of taking over countries. It's not for the sake of accumulating a country's resources. It's for the sake of eradicating oppression. For making sure that people are no longer being oppressed. And that is the physical understanding of jihad. Out of the 14 categories that exist, or would only consist of about three of them. Would only consist of about three of them. The last topic of discussion that I want to you know, enlighten you with to a certain degree, and I hope you'll allow me to use that word. I can see some of you are falling asleep already. My apologies for that. But I blame your coffee for not being strong enough. <laughs> is the issue of women in Islam. And as I mentioned, the issue of niqab was a forefront in our elections. It was a, a highly polarized, politicized debate that women are second-class citizens in Islam. They have no rights. Their fathers marry them off at a very young age. And you know what? That is how they, they spend the rest of their lives, hiding behind this veil. Now this sentiment I find very, very offensive. Very, very offensive. Why? Because it was the decree of God that I have one sibling who is a sister. It was the decree of God that when God blessed me with children, He granted me two daughters. It was the decree of God that if I was to count all of my cousins in Canada, I have nine female cousins and one male cousin. If I was to talk about the relatives that I'm closest with, I was closest, or I still am closest, to my mother. And then her mother, and then her sisters. Those are the relatives that I'm closest to. So when we talk about the role of women in Islam, it's something that's very personal to me, just because these are the community members, the family members, the society members that I'm closest with that God has chosen for me to interact with this segment of the community the most. So what's important to understand? The Qur'anic guideline, or the guideline according to the Qur'an, وَلَيْسَ ذَكَرُكَ unsa That man is not like woman. That God created men and women completely differently. In what sense? One is able to bear children, the other one isn't. One is physically stronger, the other one is emotionally stronger. One is able to multitask and is more social. The other one is not able to multitask as well and is definitely not as social. Let me enlighten you with this. So as the uh, Adnan mentioned in, my, in the introduction, I'm a family and youth counselor. And one of the biggest things that I see why, as to why marriages break down is because communication breaks down. So I'll give you an example, and this may not work across all segments of the community and society, but you'll definitely be able to relate to it for sure. So in Islam, there's no concept of, of dating the person that you're about to marry. You can get to know them within guidelines and through you know, outings and so on and so forth. But in terms of dating itself, that doesn't exist. Right? So, now for a man, he's about to get married to this woman, let's just say he doesn't have any female siblings. When a man has a problem in his life, he shuts down. He needs time for isolation. He needs time to think. And then he will come back, and then he will become social again. From a woman's perspective, 
dealing with stress is actually a very social experience for her. A woman will have that one friend that is with her that will console her, put her arm around her. The other friend, she's the friend that holds the Kleenexes. The other friend is like, don't worry, it's going to be okay. And then if they're not there, her first reaction is going to be, okay, let me call this person so I can share what I have to share. So now a man and a woman, when they get together for the first time and they don't have the knowledge of interaction of how the opposite gender deals with stress, when the man sees his wife stressed for the first time, he thinks to himself, oh, she's just like me. She wants to be left alone. So he ends up walking away and he's like, yeah, I'll see you later when you've solved your issue. Come and talk to me. And the wife's thinking like, how, what an inconsiderate jerk. What's wrong with this guy? Why is he walking away? And then from a man's perspective, the first time he's stressed, and the woman's thinking, oh, he's just like me. He needs that social involvement. She comes to hug him and is bringing the tissues. And she's like, you know, let's talk about your feelings. And the man's like, what's wrong with you? Leave me alone. So when I talk about men and women being different, it is this psychological aspect, the physical aspect of being different. So now, if we were to give both of these two different creations of God the same roles, that would be very challenging. Because God created us very different. So what is the word we use over here? We don't talk about equality. Because apples and oranges are not equal. Right? What we use is a concept of equity. Where in terms of opportunity to contribute to society, we are equal. In terms of opportunity to get close to God, we are equal. In terms of opportunity to get to paradise, we are equal. In terms of opportunity to be forgiven, we are equal. Those are some of the rules that dictate the interaction between men and women. Now the obvious question is going to arise and come up, hey, if that is the case, why is it that women, Muslim women wear a headscarf and Muslim men don't? What's the deal with that? The deal with that, my honorable guests, is that as I mentioned in the beginning of my talk, we have to take a holistic approach to everything. And when we talk about rules of interaction with human beings, the same thing is required. As I mentioned, God has given many things to us as a trust. I mentioned money. I mentioned our eyesight, the ability to smell, taste, and feel, the ability to love. Particularly when it comes to our female folk, the Prophet Muhammad has mentioned that they are a trust from God. Meaning that if you do not treat them fair and you do not treat them well, you will be questioned. And that is why when a young man came to the Prophet Muhammad and he asked him, O Messenger of God, who is most deserving of my respect and reverence? He said, your mother. He said, then who? He responded again with, your mother. He was said, then who, O Messenger of God? He again responded, your mother. He asked for a fourth time, and he said, then who, O Messenger of God? And he said, your father. So the mother was emphasized three times more than the male figure was. In a separate narration, the Prophet Muhammad, he said, the best of you are those that are most conscious of God. And those that are most conscious of God are those that are best to their womenfolk. Those that are best to their womenfolk. So now, with this understanding, 
and understanding the psychological differences between a man and a woman, we now approach the issue of the headscarf. The first thing you need to know, we have multiple community members that are here that are wearing the headscarf. And you can go and ask them, I actually in fact know none of them, I've never met any of them before. You can ask them, have they been forced, have they been compelled to wear this headscarf? And I cannot say for 100% for sure, but what I can say is, internally speaking, I'm 100% confident that they will say, this was a personal choice for me. And if you were to ask them why, it would go something along the lines of, I know this is pleasing to God, so this is why I want to do it. And I think even for our Christian community members that are here, the portraits that we see of Mary in your faith, we regularly see her wearing a headscarf, or something similar to a headscarf. When we see nuns in the Christian faith, we commonly see them wearing a similar headscarf. And it is similar to that nature, that this headscarf is not a sign of oppression, it is a sign of modesty. In fact, for me personally, it's a sign of something greater than that. That when a woman wears it, she's telling the world that don't judge me based upon my looks, judge me upon what I have to offer. A discussion that I have with my wife from time to time is how you know, grateful I am that she is a woman of faith and that she wears this headscarf. And she asks me why. I tell her, your beauty is something only people that are worthy and deserving of should get to see. Not everyone should get, be, get to see it. Not everyone should be allowed to be exposed to it. And in my way, I consider myself the most fortunate person that I'm married to you, and I get a chance to see that beauty. And that's like our moment of, ah, how sweet and stuff. <laughs> right? But that's like the discussion that I have with her. And for me, you know, when we talk about Islam, you know, something that I have to give credit to, where credit is deserved, is our female counterparts. They are the true ambassadors of Islam. If you saw me on the street, you may know I'm a Muslim, you may not know that I'm a Muslim. But when you see a woman with hijab on, it is understood that this woman is a Muslim. And she's a natural ambassador of the faith. And they've done a darn good job of it. And I would hope that you guys can join me in giving them applause of appreciation. Thank you. So, I'm not sure if you guys noticed, but Adnan came to the front and he's like, you gotta conclude, you gotta conclude. So I'm pretty much out of points, but I do just want to conclude with one last simple point. I mentioned in the beginning of my talk that as a human race, as Canadian citizens, we have common goals, we have common ambitions, the threats to us are similar to the threats to you. The goals that we have, the world that we live in, is the same world. And we all want to see this world as a better place. And the way we see that is through getting to know one another and appreciating each other's diversity. Now, everything that I've shared tonight, I can hope is palatable to you. But I cannot expect that each and every single person agrees with everything that I've said. What I can hope for though, is that we will mutually respect our differences and that we will still love and care for one another. And regardless of if I get to know your name or where you come from or what your story is right now, one promise that you do have from me at least and the MSA 
on this campus is that we are here at your service. Anything that you need from us, anything you would like to know, anything that we can do to make your day better and to make your Kelowna better, please do let us know because that's what we're here for. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your attention and I open up the floor for questions. Okay, for sure. I have a number of problems with what you've said, but I will restrict you to one point. Sure. Uh, you have just given us your version of Islam. Yes. Now, by the way, I would ask the same question if you're a Christian or a Jew or a Hindu. Right. If we had an ISIS member standing before us right now, uh-huh. he would give us his version of Islam. Correct. And he would say his version is and your version is wrong. Correct. So my question is, why should I believe your version and not his version? Fantastic. Thank you very much for your question. Uh, did everyone hear his question? Okay. So in terms of you know, understanding what is truth and what is ultimate truth and what are our sources of knowledge, this is what I was sort of, sort of alluding to in the beginning when I spoke about you, we need to differentiate between what the religion is versus what its followers actually say and do. So with that having been said, if I wanted to judge Christianity, I would go towards the Bible and I would study the Bible. Similarly over here, if I wanted you to know what Islam truly says, I would say, read a copy of the Qur'an. Read a copy of the traditions of the Prophet Muhammad. And that is the, I'll give you an opportunity to respond to that as well. And that would be the only way that you could know for sure what the religion of Islam actually says. And then you could corroborate, hey, did what Naveed Aziz say tonight, is it actually true? Or is he just talking a bunch of hot air? Right? But this is just an introduction to that further discussion. That I mentioned verses of the Qur'an, I mentioned statements of the Prophet, as an introduction that those of you that are interested, you have an opportunity to get a copy of the Qur'an, to get some you know, traditions of the Prophet Muhammad, and see what he actually says. And that is the only way for sure you can know which 